dismissed. Let's uh, take our Bibles this morning and open them to the book of Genesis. Chapter 27, verse 30. Let's see, I think we're supposed to have the screen on, right? Now you see why we need a media director. There we go. (laughs) Genesis chapter 27, verse 30. The title of our message this morning is the the precision of prophecy. And that title won't make any sense until we get to verse 40, and we may not even get to verse 40. So this might end up being a part one. But however the Lord leads, what the Lord put on my heart as we were moving our way through the book of Genesis is the precision of prophecy. We are in the section of the book of Genesis where God is raising up the nation of Israel through four men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and later Joseph, and we are in the Jacob section. Jacob is the key character, chapters 27 through 36. And we saw in chapter 27, verses 1 through 5, how Isaac had an intention to give what in patriarchal times was the blessing. Coming from the father to typically the firstborn, and he was going to bless Esau, which was a wrong move because God had already said in chapter 25, verse 23, that the older will serve the younger. The blessing should be going to Jacob. And so Isaac's wife overhears this and she has sort of a conspiratorial meeting with Jacob. And the plan, of course, is to deceive Isaac, whose eyesight is declining, that Jacob is actually Esau. That's the deception. So the blessing will go to Jacob instead of Esau. And so the deception and the blessing takes place in verses 18 through 29 where Isaac blesses Jacob thinking he's Esau. And now Esau returns and he's realizing that he has been cheated out of, in his mind, the blessing. And that occurs in verses 30 through 40. And so here's kind of an outline that we're going to try to use as we navigate our way through those verses, or these verses. Notice, first of all, the return of Esau, verse 30. Now it came about as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had hardly gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. You remember that Isaac originally told Esau to go out and hunt, capture food, prepare a wonderful meal for me so that I can bless you. Esau has been out doing that. Jacob has been involved in deception while Esau is gone. And you sort of get the impression that Esau came back and it was a close call. 30 seconds later, he would have said he would have seen Jacob there. But it's a very close call. Esau comes back. Jacob has now departed, verse 30. 
and verse 31, you now see Esau preparing the meal. Verse 31, it says, Then he also made savory food and brought it to his father and said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. So Esau did exactly what he was told to do. Back in verses 3 and 4. Go out, hunt, capture game, use it to prepare a meal so I can give you the blessing. And now Isaac, although his eyesight is declining, figures out he's been um, taken to the cleaner, so to speak. He's been deceived. And you see that in the proper identification, verse 32, and then there's a reaction. Notice, if you will, verse 32. Isaac, his father, said to him, who are you? And he, that's Esau, said, I am your Firstborn son, Esau. Isaac now realizes he's been deceived, and that leads to a reaction there in verse 33. Then Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was he that hunted game and brought it to me so that I ate all of it before you came and blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. This expression, trembled violently, could literally be translated, Isaac trembled a great tremble exceedingly. Um, I don't think it's a tremble out of fear. I think it's, excuse me, it's not a tremble out of anger that he had been deceived. It's more a tremble out of fear. And as I'll explain in just a little bit, what according to patriarchal customs, has been done here, is Isaac has transferred a blessing to Jacob instead of Esau, and there cannot be any revocability in that. What he has done here is irrevocable. It's kind of like uh, lawyers understand this. They study contract law in law school, and you can actually make an offer Because for a contract, you need an offer, you need an acceptance, and you need consideration or some kind of bargain for exchange. And if those elements are met and there's no defense um, against those elements, then you've got a contract. And it's an interesting study because there are circumstances where you can make an offer and you can't just withdraw the offer. If certain criteria are met, the offer becomes irrevocable. It cannot be withdrawn. And that's what's happened here to Esau. That's why he's trembling. He realized he's been deceived, and he made what he thinks is a wrong move. And his reaction is um, very similar to Esau's reaction. Esau gets very angry at this point. Notice Esau's reaction as he begins to cry and he begins to make a request. That's in verse 34. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out an exceedingly great and bitter cry. Why is Esau crying? Because Esau understands that the blessing would give certain things to him of a material nature. Those were mentioned last week as we studied verses 28 and also verse 29. 
And Esau is realizing that he's been cheated in his mind of those things. So he begins to cry. He makes a request there at the end of verse 34 and said to his father, bless me, even me also, O my father. I want to be blessed too. Well, it doesn't work that way. What's happened is irrevocable. And you'll also see Isaac's reaction. Verse 35, his reaction involves truth, and it also involves a lie. Notice verse 35, and he said, your brother came deceitfully. Completely accurate. The sin of Jacob was deceit, manipulation, not waiting upon God to execute his will, but trying to help God out as if poor God needs some help in fulfilling his promises. Uh, it's the identical thing that Abram and Sarai did by having Abram impregnate Hagar, Genesis 16, to kind of speed the process up because we're old people and we're just getting tired of waiting on the Lord. And whenever we get like that, um, we don't thwart God's will, but we introduce into our lives all kinds of consequences which could be avoided. Uh, here, Jacob is going to experience several consequences in the next few chapters because he simply did not wait on the Lord. With Abram and Sarai and the beginning of the Ishmaelites, I would argue that the nation of Israel right down to the present hour is being threatened and harassed by such people all of which could be avoided had Abram and Sarai simply waited upon the Lord. There's just tremendous teaching here for all of us to learn how to wait upon the Lord to do what he wants. Patience in waiting for the Lord can be a very difficult thing for the child of God. But how in the world do we ever learn patience when we treat God sort of like McDonald's Have it your way. Well, I guess that's not McDonald's. That's Burger King. Hey, Pastor, you're demonstrating a lot of knowledge about fast food. What's going on? Well, we'll talk about that some other time. But we're living in this society where you put your order in, you put your dinner into the microwave oven, whatever it is, and immediate gratification. And you're a child of God, and you think God wants to execute and accomplish certain things in your life, and we take that same attitude and we transfer it to God. And what you've learned very fast as a Christian, as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the Lord doesn't move according to my timetable. He moves according to his timetable. And therefore, we have to learn the the lesson of waiting on the Lord, which involves patience. One of the... Fruits, fruit of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 through 23, characteristics that God is seeking to build in our lives is patience. And you don't learn patience by saying, Lord, give me patience and give it to me right now. You learn patience by trusting God to do what he wants to do in those seasons of life where it doesn't seem like a lot of progress is being made or accomplishing whatever end it is you think God is seeking to accomplish. 
God's timing is absolutely flawless. Absolutely perfect. I understand that many times from a theological level. Once you apply that to personal life, it becomes difficult, but it's true. God's timing is perfect, and we have to learn to wait on the Lord. So Isaac here has actually made um, a true statement, verse 35, and then he makes a false statement. He says, he, that's Jacob, has taken away your blessing. That's not true. And the reason um, it's not true is because Genesis 25, 23, a prophecy or a statement by God was given that clearly Isaac would have a knowledge of the older shall serve the younger. So the blessing should have gone to Jacob anyway. Jacob's sin was not seeking the blessing. Jacob's sin was the sin of deception. And Isaac's sin was functioning according to the way the world works rather than according to God's standards. The way the ancient Near East worked is all of the rights went to the firstborn. God says, no, not this time around. I'm sovereign. And so many times we walk with God and we expect God to operate exactly like the world system operates, and it doesn't work that way. God does things his own way that are many times counter-cultural. If you really want to be a counter-cultural person, walk with Jesus Christ. And you'll see that Jesus is oftentimes advocating, commanding, teaching things that go directly against the culture. And we need our minds renewed. We need our minds washed, so to speak, through the word of God so that we can understand God's value system and not demand that God operate according to our very simplistic worldviews and understanding of things. And so Isaac has actually said something that's true. There's been a deceit, but he's also said something that's not true. The blessing should have been to you, Esau. Isaac could have known better and should have known better had he just spent some time pondering Genesis 25 and verse 23. This is why when you go through the Psalms, it will always say, not always, but many times in the Psalms, you get to the conclusion of the Psalm, it will say Selah, which is a Hebrew word for consider carefully, ponder. Let that thought that you've learned in that Psalm Ruminate in your mind. Think about it. Think about it carefully. And as we do that, we start to understand God has a different value system and a different way of working than we do. And we get less frustrated with God when he doesn't do things according to our schedule. See law. Ponder. Consider carefully. You'll notice there in verse 36, now Esau makes a request It says, then he said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright. And behold, now he has taken away my my blessing. I've been ripped off twice by this guy. First, the birthright. That was back, I think, in chapter 25. And now the blessing. When the blessing and the birthright weren't to go to him anyway, because God says the older 
will serve the younger. Esau is to serve Jacob, not the other way around. Jacob's name um, is very interesting. And here uh, Isaac or Esau is making a complaint, verse 36. And then he's also making a request. As he complains, he makes a statement here about Jacob's name. This uh, quote here from Arnold Fruchtenbaum in his Genesis commentary I thought was very helpful here. He says in 2736, verse 36, came Esau's complaint and request. Esau's complaint was, and he said, is not he rightfully named Jacob or Yaakov in Hebrew, for he has supplanted me these two times. In Hebrew, the word supplanted comes from the root Akav, Jacob. The meaning coming from Esau's lips goes from overreacher or supplanter to deceiver. The meaning of the name now moved from a positive to a negative implication, but it was done by Esau and not by God. Jacob's name really didn't mean deceiver out of the gate. Esau now is taking his name and sort of twisting it to turn him into a deceiver. The meaning of the name now moved from a positive to a negative implication, but it was done by Esau, not by God. Again, Jacob's name comes from the Hebrew word akav, which basically means heal. It also has meaning in verbal form to hold the heel in order to get before. This is the usage in Jeremiah 9 verse 4. It has the meaning of heel grabber, one who trips another by the heel or overtakes and supplants him in the race. Therefore, by way of etymology, Jacob equaling supplanter is a development in meaning, not the actual meaning of the word. Jacob twice overtook Esau. That is, Jacob tripped him and supplanted him in the race. Esau's rhetorical question was, is he called Jacob or overreacher that he has twice overreached me? Is it because he bears his name that has now twice come to pass? In other words, the question was, is it all in the name? Of course, it was not all in the name, but rather in the outworking of God's plan. According to Esau, the two times were first he took away my birthright, which was a lie since Esau had sold his birthright. And second, behold, now he has taken away my blessing. This second claim, too, was a lie since the blessing belonged to the one with the birthright. Here again in the Hebrew text is a word play with a chiastic symmetrical construction, my birthright. Right, he took away my blessing. I found that very interesting because I'd always thought that Jacob's name at the beginning meant deceiver. It does not. It means heel grabber. But Esau, very frustrated of what's happening, has now taken his name and sort of poured a different meaning into it, meaning deceiver. This is something that actually Esau says rather than God himself. Was Jacob in sin here? Yes, he was. But the only sin was deception. Because the rights of the firstborn, the older shall serve the younger, were in God's mind to go to Jacob rather than Esau.
You'll notice also Esau making a request, verse 36, and he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Bless me even also my father. And now um, what you have is a reaction. Have you not reserved a blessing for me is essentially the request. What's Isaac's answer? It's right there in verse 37. But Isaac replied to Esau, Behold, I have made him your master and all his relatives. I have given to him as servants and with grain and new wine I have sustained him. This is sort of um, a rehashing, if you will, of the blessings that we studied last week that went from Isaac to Jacob. Blessings from God, agricultural blessings, blessings related to authority. And then there was sort of a restatement of what's spoken of in Genesis 12, verse 3. He who curses you, I will curse. He who blesses you, I will bless. But the problem with all of this because Esau is upset that these material blessings that he was really interested in are not are no longer coming to him. He wants to know, can this somehow be reversed? And the truth of the matter is it can't. It's irrevocable. And you see that there in verse 37, second part of the verse. Now, as for you then, what can I do, my son? This is what Isaac said by way of reply. I can't undo what's been done. Bless me also. I can't do what's been undone. This is interesting because this irrevocable nature of blessings is something that you find by studying the ancient Near East. In other words, what's happening here, this irrevocability that we're trying to describe, is something that you find in the archaeological evidence covering the time period when these things occurred. In other words, what you're reading here in the Bible is not out of harmony with everything we know about archaeology going back to patriarchal times. Arnold Fruchtenbaum again says this, in other words, the blessing given to Jacob is irrevocable. Indeed, the Newsy Tablets, now you probably haven't spent your devotional time this week in the Newsy Tablets. The Newsy Tablets are tablets that cover outside of the Bible this general time period. And what you're reading about here is consistent with everything we know in the Newsy Tablets. Indeed, the Newsy Tablets teach that such oral testaments were binding. And there is an example in the Newsy Court record of Tarmyi, if I'm pronouncing that right, Tarmyi's older brothers contested his inheritance of a, of a slave girl, and Tarmyi's defense was, based upon his father's oral testament, the tablet read as follows, quote, my father, Huya, who was sick and lay on a couch, then my father seized my hand and spoke Thus to me, my other sons being older have acquired a wife. So I give here, and I'm not even sure I'm going to try to pronounce that name. 
I recognize the last part of it, Istar as your wife, close quote. Indeed, the court ruled in his favor because these type of testaments were considered binding. Isaac began his statement in verse 2 by saying, I am old and now I know that the day of my death is coming. The Newsy tablets also begin the exact same way when introducing the final disposition of property. So again here with Isaac's blessings, blessing of his sons was a strong correlation with ancient Near Eastern texts, close quote. I hope we understand, and I try to make this point every time we come to an issue like this, that what you're reading in the Bible is not veggie tales. This is not Jack and the Beanstalk. This is not story time for the week. This is history. And critic after critic after critic has attacked the Bible, saying it's just a book of fiction. But the more we discover about archaeology of the time period, we see that the scripture takes place in a setting that's very, very credible archaeologically. Why bring this up? Because your children and your grandchildren, depending on how they're being educated, are being taught in the school system, for example, that Christianity is not real history. Now, the history, the real history is with us in the classroom. I have the Ph.D. And what they're doing in church is just spiritual. It's just religion. But real history takes place in the classroom. And so countless people are kept away from the things of God and kept away from the person of Jesus Christ because they don't really think there's any real historical credibility to the Bible itself. And I'm here to tell you that it's that's one of the greatest lies Satan has ever foisted on people. It's a lie because at point after point after point, you see a scenario that fits everything we know about the time period of the day. This is not just true for the patriarchal stories. It's true for the Gospels. It's true for Old Testament history. <coughs> it's true for Acts, Paul, etc., etc. This notion of an irrevocable blessing stands the test of scrutiny relative to the Nuzi tablets. So Esau, once understanding that this is irrevocable, starts to lament. He laments, verse 38, and then he cries, verse 38. Notice uh, the lament, chapter 38. It says, Esau said to his father, do you have only a blessing, one blessing, my father? Bless me also, O my father. Then he starts to cry. So Esau lifted up his voice and he wept. The crying and emotion of Esau should not be confused with repentance. You'll notice what the book of Hebrews says about this in chapter 12, verses 16 and 17. It says that there be no immoral person or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. 
For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. And I bring this up because this is how a lot of people present the gospel. Human beings are always trying to add some sort of work to the presentation of the gospel. The only condition that must be met to be becoming a Christian to receiving justification by God is faith alone. And I've heard many people say, yeah, but you got to have faith, but you got to be sorry. And the more crocodile tears you can shed, the better. Um, such a teaching does not square with what the Bible says about the simplicity of salvation. God only requires that a single condition be met, which is faith. Faith is another way of saying trust. Trust, as I'm using the word here, is another way of saying repentance, which does not mean penance. People confuse repentance and penance all of the time. And so they're kind of conditioned into thinking that becoming a Christian involves some kind of human work. Well, gosh, uh, maybe when I got saved, I believe, but I didn't cry very much. Maybe I need to believe again. Now, if you want to cry when you get saved, then go right ahead, cry a river. Cry until your eyes are dry. But God never made that a condition. God says there's one condition. You believe, which means trust. Another way of saying trust is you repent. Repent means change of mind. It's uh, the Greek word meta, noeo, meta, change. Noeo, notion, mind, change of mind. And it is completely possible for a person to be very, very sad and very, very sorry, but having never repented. Esau was like that. Another key example of this is Judas himself. Matthew 27, verse 3 says, Then when Judas, who also betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Judas, as you know at that point, went out and hanged himself. Judas never believed, but he was very sorry. Hell itself is filled with sorrowful people. Because sorrow doesn't necessarily equate with believing. Peter, by contrast, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 75... It says of Peter, Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter wept, but it was accompanied by true repentance. What turned Peter's life around was changing his mind. Meta noeo. Which is something that's completely different than sorrow. Did you know in Greek, meta noeo? Repentance, there's a different word called metamelomai. Recognize the word mellow, mellow out, chill out, change of emotion. The gospel is not metamelomai 
and metanoeo. Those are two different categories. The gospel is believe or trust, which is a synonym for metanoeo. And I bring all of this up because we have many, many false gospels today being presented. Humans are always trying to insert some sort of work on the front end in order to be justified before God. And we tell people to do things that God never requires of them. A lot of people are sorry because they got caught. And they're experiencing consequences. Not because they had an authentic change of mind. So Esau is doing a lot of crying here, but the book of Hebrews commenting on it says it was a sorrow without repentance. We need to get our categories straight on this. These are different things entirely. So there is a lament and there is a cry. And it's at this point that Esau sort of reaches into his bag of tricks and tries to pull out some kind of blessing for the disgruntled Esau. And you see that manifesting with promises related to land and also promises related to a nation. This isn't the blessing that Jacob received by deceit, but this is sort of a a substitute at best. And notice what he says concerning the land. It's right there in verse 39. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling. And away from the dew of heaven from above. It's the opposite of what Esau said to Jacob Excuse me, Isaac said to Jacob, thinking he was Esau, back in verse 28, where he gave land promises. Now, may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. There were land promises going to Jacob, but not to Esau. What do we mean by land promises? This is the land that God promised to Abram in Genesis 15, verses 18 through 21, a tract of real estate essentially going from modern-day Egypt to modern-day Iraq, from the Nile all the way to the Euphrates. That land does not belong to the Palestinians, contrary to what they're telling you on the news. That belongs to the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those land promises will be fulfilled in the millennial reign of Christ. This is what was promised to Jacob. This is not what is promised to Esau. Arnold Fruchtenbaum writes this, At this point there is a blessing for Esau in chapter 27, verses 39 through 40. In verse 39, first of all, he speaks concerning Esau, Behold, the fatness of the earth shall be your dwelling. In the Hebrew text, there is a men partitive. Literally, it should be read away from the fatness of the earth shall be your dwelling. The next phrase of the dew of heaven from above also has a men partitive, literally meaning away from the dew of heaven. The point is that while in some translations it sounds similar to the blessing that he gave Jacob, In the Hebrew text, it is actually the opposite of what is promised to Jacob. It means that since Esau's place is away from this 
and away from that, Esau will not inherit the land. Whatever his blessing was, it will be away from the land and he will not be the inheritor of the land. Do you understand that Islam comes in and rewrites all these passages? Making it sound like Esau gets the land but not Jacob. Making it sound like Ishmael gets the land and not Isaac. And this becomes their justification for, hey, we want part of the nation of Israel ourselves. It's actually a theological conflict, theological battle. It's uh, essentially what Yasser Arafat told then-President Bill Clinton, who at the end of his term was trying to negotiate the Temple Mount between the Israelis and the so-called Palestinians. And Yasser Arafat says to Bill Clinton, you know, the temple was never here to begin with. Now, even Bill Clinton said, I don't think that's right. Because I was raised a Baptist. And when I wasn't looking at all the women in the audience, I was listening to what the preacher said and the Bible says Solomon built the temple. So, so that was a lie that even Clinton himself acknowledged. It, this whole thing that's going on in the Middle East, it's a dispute over the scriptures, what it is. This is why Islam rewrites these passages. But a plain reading of the Bible will not allow that. There is no way you can read this and make it sound like Esau gets the land, but Jacob doesn't. And God is going to fulfill everything he ever promised to the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When we get into the millennial kingdom, they will own every square inch, every square millimeter of that property, all the way from the Nile to the Euphrates, all the way from modern-day Egypt to modern-day Iraq. So here Esau at least is being blessed by Isaac, but don't confuse that blessing with the blessings that rightfully go to the Jewish people concerning the land. And then he makes a promise to him of a future nation. And this is where you have some very interesting precision of prophecy. You have a prophecy related to a sword, verse 40, subjugation, verse 40, and freedom. Verse 40, notice what he says here about the sword as Esau, excuse me, Isaac is now blessing Esau. By your sword you shall live. Meaning you're going to live the life of a plunderer. And oh my goodness, did that happen in biblical history. The nation of Israel was released from 400 years of Egyptian bondage and they went to Mount Sinai and they received the law of God and they were making sort of an upward trajectory into the land of Canaan and it's there that God set aside the first generation out of Egypt and started working with the second generation. You'll read all of these things in the book of Numbers and here is Israel making its way into the land of Canaan that God promised for them and who was standing right in their way? Edomites. Where do the Edomites come from? The Edomites come from 
Esau. And you will see Esau's lineage, Numbers 20, verses 14 through 21, standing in the way of the Israelis. And so when it says, by your sword you shall live, in other words, you shall live the life of a plunderer, that's exactly what happened. Centuries later. More interesting prophecies coming here as Isaac is blessing Esau. And these are prophecies related to subjugation. And by your brother shall you serve. That's a reiteration of what was spoken of in Genesis 25-23, that the older shall serve the younger. And track that through the Bible, and you'll see that prophecy meticulously, meticulously coming to pass. For example, Esau, or the Edomites, were defeated by Saul, the Israeli, in 1 Samuel 14, verse 47. You will see the Edomites being subjected or subjugated by David. 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 14. You'll actually see a failed revolt by the Edomites coming from Esau against Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 14 through 22. You will see the Edomites being subdued by Amaziah, the king of Israel, 2 Kings 14, verse 7, 2 Chronicles chapter 25, verses 11 through 19. This is why I love the study of the book of Genesis. Because if you can understand the foundational principles spoken of in the book of Genesis, the rest of the Bible will fall into complete focus for you. Because God means what he says and says what he means. He can't lie. And so it's interesting how this blessing coming from Esau, excuse me, Isaac um, to Esau related to subjugation. It's interesting how all of these things began to transpire in biblical history. And then you have as part of this blessing issues related to freedom. It says at the end of verse 40, but it shall come about that when you become restless, that you will break his yoke from your neck. In other words, Esau's descendants some way, somehow would be given their freedom. Um, lots of Different ways this happened in biblical history. But one of the things that's most interesting is how Edomites came the Herodian dynasty, which you read about in the New Testament, which is responsible to a large extent for the execution of Jesus Christ. Arnold Fruchtenbaum sort of puts the history together for us. He says in subsequent history... When the Jews went into the Babylonian captivity, the Edomites left their territory at Mount Seir in the Transjordan and moved into the southern part of Judah, where they became known as the Edomians. 
In addition, later, these Edomians were conquered one by one by the descendants of the Maccabees, John Hyrcanus, who conquered them in 129 B.C. and forcibly converted them to Judaism and then incorporated them into Edomia, into the Jewish Judean state. Eventually, these converted Edomians produced the dynastic rule of the house of Herod. And maybe that's what's bound up in this prophecy. It shall come about that when you become restless, that you will break his yoke, Israel's yoke, from your neck. The Bible is such that it states its credibility on its ability to predict the future. Jesus indicated that in the upper room when in John 13, verse 19, he says, From now on I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you might believe that I am he. I'm going to give you a lot of predictions, Jesus says, here in the upper room, most of which are going to be fulfilled this week, in the Passion Week. And when you see these prophecies coming together in real time, then you're going to know that I am he, I am, ego a me, a title that belongs only to God. It's a title uh, that God shared with Moses. Moses said, who should I say sent me? Tell him, I am sent you. Exodus 3, verse 14. That's why Jesus calls himself the I am. It's a direct statement that he, in fact, is God in human flesh. And he doesn't just tell his disciples, most of whom were about to go out from the upper room and be martyred. I just believe it because I said so. I want to give you some evidence. I want to give you some proof. Here's a bunch of prophecies, he mentioned several, related to his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, that are going to ha- and his betrayal at the hands of Judas, that are going to happen this week. You see him come together in real time. You're going to know who I am. You're going to believe in me to the point where you're willing to go out and die a martyr's death for my cause. The Bible states its whole reputation on its capacity to predict the future. And if that weren't enough, it's repeated in the next chapter. John 14, verse 29. Now I have told you before it happens so that when it happens, you might believe. I hope you understand that you're holding in your hand a book that makes specific predictions about the future with 100% accuracy. Well, you know, Pastor, that may be true, but I really like Nostradamus. And he was right a lot of the time. This book is right all the time. That's the difference. And some of the prophecies of Nostradamus and Gene Dixon and all of these kinds of people, they're so ambiguous, you could make it sound any way you want. Not so the scripture. Concrete specificity. This is why I'm an advocate of books like this. 
delighted to discover how many people have actually gotten this and have started reading. It's by the late John Walvoord, which was his expertise. It's entitled Every Prophecy of the Bible. And he goes through every single prophecy in Scripture and shows its fulfillment. There's a lot of stuff being promoted today in prophecy circles. I call it Jesus junk, to be honest with you. Because it has more to do with science fiction, Martians, and all of these kinds of things, and it has to do with Scripture. We're in the last days, folks. We're going to start experiencing persecution. You need to have something tucked into your soul that will allow you to stand up when the fires of persecution hit. And what Jesus challenged his disciples with was this issue of prophecy. That's why we're hosting our prophecy conference here that I hope you'll come to and sign up for February 24th and 25th. How's that for a fast advertisement? And so that's sort of how Esau's blessings end, uh, Isaac's blessings rather end, as they're going to Esau. Even what he says to Esau is completely and totally accurate. Yes, Jacob was in sin. But his sin was not in his name. His sin was not in his receiving and desiring the rights of the firstborn. His sin was in deception. And he's going to experience a lot of consequences because of that sin. But let's not blow Jacob's sin out of proportion. And because Jacob operated with deception, he too is going to be deceived. God is going to allow the deceiver to be deceived as we continue through the Jacob story. So God sort of has a way of dealing with us in our sin. Oh, you like deception? You're my child and I love you and I don't want you to operate by deception, but you like deception so much, let's see how it works when the shoe's on the other foot and you yourself are being deceived. It's sort of like, you know, Haman, you know, being executed on the same gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. When we get ourselves involved in things that God doesn't want us involved in, don't be surprised if God puts you in a situation where the shoe is now on the other foot, the tables are turned, and God will say, okay, how do you like, how do you like it now? How does it feel now? And we say, Lord, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to walk with you. I don't, I don't want to be a duplicitous man of uh, deception. So it's at this point, because of the rage of Esau, that Jacob now must flee to Haran, and we'll pick up the story, the historical account next week in verses 41 through 46. The, the work that God did through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, for what purpose? To create a genealogy leading to Jesus would enter our world 2,000 years ago and be our great sacrifice for our sins. 
So he could die on the cross and his final words would be, prior to his death, it is finished. So humanity could be given a gift that we would no longer be striving to please God in our own ability, but we would simply receive as a gift what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago. We celebrated it this morning at the Lord's table. Sin debt of the world has been paid for. All people now be saved. Every human being on the face of the earth is savable. Now, they're not saved until they receive what Jesus has done, but they're savable. And so that's our message to anyone listening. You're savable because of what Jesus did. And our exhortation is to receive what he has done for you as a gift. And there's only one way to receive a gift from God. According to Romans 4, verses 4 and 5, it is to believe, which is another way of saying trust, which is another way of saying repent, because your mind is changing about salvation. Believe in Jesus Christ alone, and just like that, you're saved. We would uh, encourage anyone that's in the building, listening or viewing online, listening or viewing after the fact via archive to respond to the convicting ministry of the Spirit of God and to trust in the Savior so as to be saved. If it's something you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray? Lord, we're grateful for this account that happened 2,000 years before the time of Christ, and yet it's a great accounting in terms of your prophecies coming together so that the gospel ultimately would be available to the human race. Help us, help many, many people within the sound of my voice to receive that free offer of forgiveness that you work so meticulously to send us. Only you can do this work, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said.